Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me from D.C. is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? It's going pretty good, although it's probably not going as well as it's going for Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who has reportedly locked down a $2 million book deal. Did you hear about that, Natalie? I did. And I mean, like, kudos to her, $2 million. Like, that is not chump change. And um, I will say, though, I was a little... I guess, surprised at hearing about it just because she's so new to the court. And normally, I, I guess I kind of think of justices penning books after they've you know had a couple of years on the bench. Yeah. And to that point, I mean, the premise of the book reportedly is about how judges should not bring their personal views to the bench, which she's only really sat on the federal bench for like a little over three years in less than a year on the Supreme Court. So an interesting topic but uh yeah a a mammoth deal so that just leads me to ask you natalie you know what's your two million dollar book idea have you you know you're a reporter every reporter dreams of (laughs) having one in their career i do actually have played around with an idea um I'm I suppose to you can't it, give us the scoop though, because then I'm trying to think. Actually, I'm trying. It. It, it's about like a type of legal case. I'm trying to think if it's been before the Supreme Court in recent years, and I don't think it has. Um, we'll do report back. That's all I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> do report. Yeah. Okay. That's a good teaser. I, I I think mine is going to be how to get a two million dollar book deal, which apparently includes joining the Supreme Court, because God knows <laughs> that she wouldn't have been able to receive this mammoth sum. Um, just not too long ago when she was still a judge on the Seventh Circuit. And I think that there has been some criticism that this just isn't really good optics that, you know, at, at a time when the Supreme Court's struggling so much with its PR and its and its, and its standing in the uh, the public sphere that she's kind of cashing in on, on a little bit of the controversy here. That's at least according to some uh, critics. Others would just say, hey, it's America, baby, and you can <laughs> you can get a $2 million book deal if the price is right. Anyway, that's a whole nother discussion. We got a lot of Supreme Court news to get into today. Um, let's start with the opinions. Natalie, there was a really interesting um, decision, a big one in a uh, juvenile justice case, this one involving life sentences um, for juvenile defendants. Can you just break down what the Supreme Court said this morning in the case Jones versus Mississippi? Yeah, so this was a 6-3 ruling, basically divided along ideological lines on the court. And the opinion essentially says that the Constitution and some previous Supreme Court precedent do not require sentencing authorities to find that a juvenile defendant is permanently incorrigible before sentencing them to life without parole. And by permanently incorrigible, we mean irreparably corrupt, right? This is an issue that we've talked about I know before here and it's um, something that has come up and developed among a string of uh, you know life without parole and death sentence cases for minors or for 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 those under 18. Um, Essentially this is a, a major blow to that kind of movement to end juvenile life sentences. Okay so before we talk about the facts of this case Let's set the scene a little bit, because you're right that this was the latest in a string of decisions about juvenile justice, and particularly about this issue of life sentences without the possibility of parole for people who committed crimes when they were juveniles. So there's a there were two other 
prominent decisions by the Supreme Court on this very issue that brings us to today's decision in Jones versus Mississippi. Um, those yes. are called Miller versus Alabama and Montgomery versus Louisiana. What are these two decisions and how do they get us to today? Yes. So Miller versus Alabama was a 2012 decision that basically said you can't make juvenile life sentences mandatory. It's, you know, judges have to have the discretion to give a lower sentence. Uh, Montgomery in 2016 applied Miller retroactively to juvenile life sentence cases. And um, key kind of to the debate that we're seeing here in Jones, Justice Kennedy, when he wrote the opinion, essentially said these like life without parole sentences should be for all but the rarest of juvenile offenders, those whose crimes reflect permanent incorrigibility, which is where we get to this, you know, permanent incorrigibility issue. Um, So so this case, Jones v. Mississippi, is coming from juvenile lifer Brett Jones, who as a 15 year old in 2004 murdered his grandfather after an argument. Um, Once Montgomery was decided and Miller was applied retroactively, he was he had a resentencing hearing. At that resentencing hearing, though, Mississippi sentencing authorities, you know, stuck to the life without parole. Jones argues that they didn't find him permanently incorrigible before handing down that life sentence, um, which he claims was a violation of the Eighth Amendment. So this is basically all about the scope of these juvenile lifer precedents and whether they require a judge in, you know, making the discretionary decision of whether or not to impose a life sentence without the possibility of parole, do they also have to make that further finding that an individual juvenile defendant is permanently incorrigible or incapable of redemption over the course of their career? So what do the Supreme Court say today? So the majority, um, in an opinion written by Justice Kavanaugh, basically said that Miller explicitly states there is no requirement of permanent incorrigibility. And, and, and in the Justice Kennedy opinion, there is, you know, it did say that there's no like fact finding requirement from Montgomery. Um, You know, Justice Kavanaugh says that the key assumption of both Miller and Montgomery was that discretionary sentencing allows the sentencer to consider the defendant's youth. Um, I will note, you know, that the Justice Kavanaugh's opinion seemed to I think really give a, a good nod to what a lot of states who had filed briefs um, in this case said, which is that they would like to keep their sovereignty essentially in, you know, and their their rights to, you know, impose sentencing guidelines for, for juveniles um, and, and to have that discretion for, for life without parole. But this was not a unanimous decision, as so many of these juvenile justice cases are. Um, There were the three dissenters. Tell us about what they said. So Justice Sotomayor wrote a dissent joined by Justices Breyer and Kagan, um, essentially arguing that the court was gutting Miller and Montgomery. Um, Justice Sotomayor said, you know, this conclusion would come as a shock to the courts in Miller and Montgomery. Miller's central holding is that a lifetime in prison is a disproportionate sentence for all but the rarest children, those whose crimes reflect irreparable corruption. And I wonder about that. Um, Kavanaugh has replaced Justice Anthony Kennedy on the Supreme Court. And for the most part, there doesn't seem to be any glaring differences between the jurisprudence between the two of them, except when it comes to some of these issues. Like, Justice Kennedy was on the forefront, right, of the court's um, 
sentences, or excuse me, the court's decisions, for instance, um, eliminating capital punishment for juvenile um, defendants, and as well as the uh, later decisions kind of limiting life without parole. So whether or not he would have been with the majority in today's decision is something obviously for speculation, but it's it's an interesting thing to topic to talk about as you consider, you know, what kind of impact Kavanaugh is actually making on the court. And I mean, you know, looking back at a lot of these juvenile life cases, so many of them were always narrowly decided. Um, None of them were ever unanimous. They always kind of split on the 6-3-5-4 kind of grounds. Um, So it it wasn't necessarily surprising to see that kind of split again here. Um, You know, and and Justice Kavanaugh... uh, you know, I, I, I think tried to, to give a, a bit of an olive branch almost to, to the other side in, in As his he's opinion. Wont to do, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I really feel like he, he does try to take that role as, um, you know, I don't know if it's peacemaker so much or as just, you know, let's like smooth down some of the ruffled feathers. Uh, you know, he, he was he, he in his he kind of ended towards his towards the end of his opinion. He was like saying, you know, this is simply a, a good faith disagreement with the dissent over how to interpret Miller and Montgomery, uh, you know. Here, the dissent thinks we're unduly narrowing Miller and Montgomery. We, by contrast, think the dissent would unduly broaden those decisions. It is, you know, I, and I think to his point, it is um, an area that. It's a close case. A close case. Exactly. Right. Although those words, he tends to use them <clears throat> in a lot of these divisive cases. And of course, they're going to be cold comfort to the actual um, defendants and litigants that they apply to. But let's move on to another case that was handed down this morning on Thursday as we record, uh, AMG Capital Management LLC versus the FTC. Now this one, before your eyes glaze over, listener, um, it is important. It is about the Federal Trade Commission um, and, and an important tool in its toolbox of fighting anti-competitive behavior and other bad behavior in the marketplace. Now the Supreme Court- And about a, a lot of money. Yes. Uh, yes. Mucho dinero. Um, <laughs> in a 9-0 unanimous decision, uh, the Supreme Court actually ruled against the FTC and held that it cannot seek equitable relief such as restitution or disgorgement in federal court. As you say, a lot of money is at stake. The FTC has actually used this um, particular provision at issue to seek billions of dollars in restitution and disgorgement for uh, consumers over the past decade plus. And this is going to be a a pretty big blow to the agency in its efforts to kind of root out marketplace ill-gotten gains, if you will. Okay. So, so kind of take us through what got us here. And first, let's go start with what got us here. (laughs) Yeah. So to give you a little bit of the context here, before I get into the particulars of this case, it's all about the powers of the FTC. So the FTC is um, an enforcement agency that that brings what are called administrative actions, administrative enforcement actions, to essentially bring bad behavior to heal um, through an administrative process. But that process wasn't always very efficient or effective. So in 1973, Congress actually authorized FTC to bypass its administrative process and and go to the federal court system and obtain an injunction directly in federal court without having to do the lengthy kind of in-house process. And since at least the late 70s, though, the FTC used that kind of injunction authority under what was called Section 13B of the FTC Act 
to seek kind of all kinds of relief and not just injunctions. And the biggest kind, the most controversial kind, is this equitable relief of restitution and disgorgement. So for instance, in, in fiscal year 2019, the FTC obtained you know $723 million in disgorgement this way. So today, That's basically- a lot of is, money. That, that has to be like a significant part of their budget in some ways. It indeed is. And you can go on the FTC's website and they talk about how they, use, they make no bones about how the fact that this is kind of a central piece in their arsenal. And today, the Supreme Court basically said, you can't do this anymore. You can only seek these types of relief um, through your in-house administrative process, which is kind of a lengthier, more burdensome process for the agency to go through. So definitely a huge blow um, to their authority to kind of root out bad behavior in the marketplace and a win for, uh, you know, obviously companies that are defending against some of these enforcement actions. I was about to say, so who's the winner here? Who's kind of the victor? So the victor in this case um, is a payday loan company that were ordered to pay $1.3 billion in restitution for allegedly deceiving and overcharging customers in violation of the FTC Act and the Truth in Lending Act. So that's proof in the pudding of how much money is at stake in some of these cases. And um, I heard from a practitioner who said that the FTC is now going to have to use this kind of burdensome administrative process if, once they go after some of this bad behavior in the marketplace. But the only potential silver lining here for the FTC is that this is an issue that's kind of gotten the attention of Congress lately. And so there have been bills in Congress to the effect of kind of allowing the FTC to go straight to the federal court system to you know sue for equitable relief, these types of huge monetary awards. Um, and so potentially you could see some you know new authorizing legislation on that front in the future. Although, obviously seeing legislation pushed through Congress and signed by the president, <laughs> easier said than done, right? Yes, definitely easier said than done. Um, now, that I think does it for us for, in terms of the big opinions of this week, Jimmy. But there were also oral arguments. This was a big week, busy week. It was a pretty busy week. It was the you know, beginning of what is usually the last argument session of the term. I know we have the special May hearing for a case that got kind of pushed back, um, but yeah, we're pretty much approaching the uh, end of the end of the tunnel here. End of the tunnel, and I am sure we're, we're going to be talking uh, some more about even more opinions in the next couple of weeks. But but first, oral arguments. Oral arguments this week. You had one on your radar um, involving. Uh, green cards and TPS recipients. Uh, Jimmy, do you want to kind of break that one down? Sure thing. So the case is called Sanchez versus Mayorkas. Um, it kind of dates back to the Trump administration era when the litigation was first filed. And the whole question at the center of it is whether immigrants with temporary protected status or TPS who arrived in the country illegally are eligible for green cards, i.e. lawful permanent residency. So TPS is a program that was created by Congress to provide, um, you know, temporary deportation relief to immigrants from certain designated countries that are experiencing humanitarian crises. There's around, I think, over 400,000 individuals with TPS status from 10 designated countries. This case deals with those TPS recipients that didn't enter the country legally and whether they, too, can apply to adjust their status to become green card holders, which is a pretty big deal. I mean... Uh, one facet of uh, temporary protected status is you can't actually leave the country. So, for instance, like if you have family in another country, um, you can't go home to visit them. Or there are other benefits as well to 
um, holding a green card. Um, so the petitioners in this case are a married couple from El Salvador who've lived in New Jersey for you know nearly 25 years, and they've worked stable jobs and raised kids. They received TPS in 2001, but because um, they did not originally come to the country legally, they were never able to adjust their status to a get to get lawful permanent residency. So this is an issue that has kind of divided the circuit courts, and that's what the Supreme Court kind of weighed in on on Monday. So I guess talk us through first the government's case on this side. So the government's case is pretty simple. Now, I should say the caveat here is that federal immigration law is pretty complicated by nature. And so what may be simple isn't always the answer that um, courts adopt. I think in this case, you could potentially see that because the justices seem pretty skeptical of the petitioner's argument, um, the argument that TPS recipients who came here illegally should qualify. Now, just to kind of go back to your question, the government's case is that the Immigration and Nationality Act provides that foreign nationals may be eligible for LPR status or a green card if they've been lawfully admitted, meaning inspected and admitted. And since this couple was not, they do not qualify. Now, an attorney for the petitioners makes a kind of a little bit more of a complicated argument and one that suggests that TPS recipients, by dint of their non-immigrant status, are technically considered under immigration law to have been inspected and admitted. Um, and that is, they relate to another provision of immigration law that treats um, non-immigrants residents of having been inspected and admitted. So it's kind of like a cross-reference argument that they're making and you know you don't have the language of the statute in front of you and it's kind of hard to visualize as i'm talking about i was about gonna it on this say podcast. this one's a, a fairly technical case it sounds like right but the point is that even the justices of the supreme court were kind of having difficulty with the petitioner's argument in monday's case and chief justice roberts he says to an attorney for the petitioner i can't follow the logic of your main suggestion of your main submission. And, and just as Kavanaugh kind of backs that up and he says that the petitioners have an uphill climb on their textual argument here. And even just as Elena Kagan, who's one of the more liberal members of the court, says that there's nothing in the section that the petitioner's attorney is referring to that stands for their broad proposition. So this is, as Kavanaugh says, going to be an uphill climb for them to ultimately prevail. And it could have pretty big consequences because obviously, you know, not all of the more than 400,000 People in this country who have temporary protected status came here legally. I know in Washington, D.C., where where I live, you know, there's a large percentage of there's a large community from El Salvador that, you know, has TPS, not all of whom came here legally. So the repercussions of this could be um, pretty big. And that's why it's considered to be one of the bigger immigration cases on the docket this year. Certainly one to watch and certainly one to see when they'll be coming out with the, those opinion that opinion. Um Jimmy, I think that just about does it for us this week, though. I think so. I'm, I'm sad to say we didn't have enough time for the uh, case that you wanted to talk about this week involving appeals costs. But potentially when there's a ruling in it, we'll When we'll there's a ruling, I think we can get to it. <laughs> <laughs> but we had to do the big stuff up top. Yes. But thanks, Natalie. And thanks to our listeners for, for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search law360 in the term. Thanks for listening. And oh, please write us a review. Thanks.